This is Unsupervised Learning, Redpoint's AI podcast. I'm Jordan Siegel, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jacob Efron. Today, we had on Harrison Chase, the founder CEO of Langchain. Langchain is the most popular framework for working with LLMs. It has incredible traction, including 38,000 Discord members and incredible companies using it like Elastic, Dropbox, and Snowflake. Harrison gave his take on a number of topics, including the agent landscape, the fact that despite being in the center of the ecosystem, the only thing he can predict is that no one will know what will happen in AI. And finally, he gave his advice to startups building an AI. I've been following Harrison for a long time, and I was super excited about this episode. And stick around for a debrief with me and Jacob. Well, Harrison, thanks so much for uh, for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm a listener, so it's exciting to be here. We, we've awesome. been looking forward to this one for a while. Um, when we when Jordan and I first started, I feel like you were on our, our set of guests. We were like, we need to have Harrison on at some point. So it is very exciting to have you on. I mean, this you, we were talking earlier, and you said this started about a year ago. That's like right around when Langchain started and all the craziness started. So I think we're kind of joined in some way, right? Exactly, exactly. You may be a little, uh, little more in it than us, but... <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> well, to kick things off, you know, one thing I, I, I thought was interesting in your background is it feels like a lot of your journey in the AI world you know, initially was motivated via the sports world and sports analytics. Yeah. And I think that's how you initially got interested. Um, I'm sure your mind has gotten racing on like the different uh, potential applications of LLMs and like the sports world and sports analytics world. Uh, anything you've seen that you thought was particularly interesting or things that if you weren't building Langchain, you're like, that would be pretty cool for uh, for the sports world. Yeah, I fewer than I would have wished, I think. Like <laughs> I, I, I would have loved for there to be like a really clear connection. One, one that I did see... Um, I'm forgetting the name of who did it, but it's basically natural language to query stats about players. So I think there was a site that was doing this before LLMs. I think, oh, I forget the name of the site, but basically it was natural language. You could ask a question like who leads the league in three-pointers or something like that, and it would query your database and give you an answer. And so I saw an application of doing that with LLMs, basically making, um, making all these stats more uh, uh, available for people. I think that's interesting. I think like... Uh, I think, yes, yeah, stats obviously drive a lot of fantasy, gambling, just general interest around the sport. And so having that more accessible is always interesting. But I wouldn't call that like super unique or super revolutionary. Yeah. Anything in your like dream the dream, you know, future of of, of what could be done? Oh, one thing that I think would be really cool um, is basically like generating commentary for sports. Hmm. Um, so I think I, if you look at like a lot of the cool applications of this technology, I still think to me, a lot of the really cool ones are the creative ones. Um, so I think like Midjourney, Character AI, Suno, uh, all of them are really creative. And so I think like, yeah, if you could generate um, uh, commentators for a game without having to have them there, um, or I think this is the next level, like personalize it to the viewer that's watching or something like that. I, I, I don't know how close we are to that, but I think that would be really cool. Yeah, they could be like, this three-pointer is like that shot you watched last Friday night, you know? Or... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's super cool. Do you know if it, like NFL or NHL or anyone is using Langchain? Um, we, uh, yeah, we did chat with one NBA team. Um, I cool. think it was mostly for like internal, uh, internal ops, so letting people kind of like query a bunch of the data within the organization. So I don't think anything consumer-facing. I think it would be great for the audience to understand sort of the breadth of Langchain at this point. You guys are just doing so much and covering so much surface area. Um, so it'd be great to go into that a little bit more as well as Langsmith and sort of how that fits into everything too. Yeah, yeah, we do a lot. So I'll try to remember it all. <laughs> um, I mean, maybe just backing up, like I think Langchain started as, I mean, a framework for building LLM applications, which itself is very vague and horizontal because LLMs themselves are very vague and horizontal and good at general purpose things. 
Um, and so I think a lot of what Langchain, the open source package, was founded around was this idea of an orchestration layer to kind of like facilitate building a, a, of some of these applications. Um, and I think one of the things we saw pretty quickly on is there's such a wide breadth of applications that you can build. So I think like probably the most common one that people are building is some sort of like chatbot over your data. And so a lot of the functionality that we have is around uh, chat, is around streaming, is around retrieval. That's a, that's a big part of it as well. Um, and, and so there's a lot of functionality there. Um, but there's a ton of other use cases as well. So extraction is a huge use case in, in enterprise. Um, some There's some cool kind of, I don't know if, yeah, like assistant-like things. Um, and so that's a very, that, that, that itself is like horizontal. Um, so I guess maybe trying to get it like a little bit more specific, um, like uh, access to uh, uh, some sort of search engine. So like the, the typical kind of like retrieval chatbot is like retrieve things, put it in context. But, off, you know, you could mess up the retrieval step. You could need to do multiple retrieval steps. And so this idea of like an assistant is useful there. It's also useful for like uh, SQL, text to SQL is a big use case, text to like an arbitrary API. Um, so I think a lot of what Langchain is, is connecting LLMs to external sources of data and computation. And there's a tons of, of forms of data and computation. And so it's a really wide breadth and, and and that's like the orchestration layer in uh, laying chain. I think one thing we realized pretty early on is that in order to, you know, with the mission of building or making it easy to build LLM applications, you don't just need an orchestration layer. There's a lot of other things that you need. Um, some of these are vector databases, which have emerged as kind of like a big category. Um, one of the, and we're not doing anything there, one of the areas where we did see a big need and where we are doing stuff is around kind of like the observability and testing and evaluation layer. And so that's LangSmith. That's a separate kind of like SaaS platform that as of recently is generally available. Um, we've kind of been iterating it on it for the past six months. Um, we saw this be a huge issue as teams were kind of like go from that prototype to production. And, and the fun thing is I'm sure there are other areas that are also needs that we'll discover as we go along and maybe we'll build some. Maybe there will be other companies that come along and build those. Um, but yeah, general purpose of Langchain, make it as easy as possible to build LLM applications. Started with orchestration layer. Now have observability testing. A lot more to be built. Awesome. And then, you know, I'm sure a lot of people give you advice to focus just on one thing, let's say retrieval or something like that. What made you decide to sort of go across, you know, a lot of different surface areas? I think they're all related in some sense. So if you look at like retrieval, um, a lot of the interesting retrieval techniques that are coming out are very agentic. Um, so there's kind of like self-rag and corrective rag, which both have this idea of like doing a retrieval step and then looking to see if it was good enough and then correcting itself. Um, and, and so from the, and then, so, okay, so I'd say like three main areas that we focused on from the beginning are retrieval, agents, and evaluation. And I think they're all super related and there's like a flywheel between them. So like agents can be used to do retrieval. Retrieval are maybe the most popular tool to give agents. Um, evaluation is needed for both of them. Agents can be used to do evaluation. Um, so I think there's a lot of, uh, getting back to this idea of like language models are this amazing new technology because they're so general. Um, like that's, that's a lot of the value in them. And so, yeah, I think there's just a lot of connectedness between all these different components. Um, you know, I, I would say we've tried to uh, focus a little bit on those three main things. Um, obviously, LangChain does a lot. There are more focused packages that do a great job at some of the smaller niches. Um, but with retrieval, evaluation, and, and agents, we see those being so core to so many different things. It's, it's tough to just say do one because I don't entirely know what that would mean. I'm curious on the, the LangSmith side. A lot of people are super excited about that. 
Um, what type of production sort of applications do you think are most suitable for for Langsmith? And what do you think sort of the the main user would be for that? The the obvious ones where there's just so much value are when you're building things that are multiple LM calls or multiple steps. Because um, I think the the quickest kind of like way to to see the value of Langsmith is is with the tracing and observability that provides. So it logs all the steps of your chain or agent, the inputs and outputs uh, in the exact sequence. And so when you have these more complex things that are uh, maybe you don't even know how many steps they're going to take. Um, or if you do, like there's multiple of them. Um, having that is just super valuable and being able to understand what's going on, debug it, dive into it. Um, so so that's kind of like the clear, like if you're building more complex applications, I think you pretty quickly get value from from uh, the observability part of Langsmith. Um, I think there are a lot of aspects where um, it's a sing- it's a single prompt and there is still value. And so specifically, I would say when you have prompts that maybe have three or four variables that you're templating into it, even if it's a single call to an LLM, it's still nice to be able to see what exactly it is, um, what, it, what it looks like, what's the arrangement of everything. You maybe have conversational history, like what parts got trimmed or not by the time it goes into the LLM. And so even for like single calls to LLM, there's there's still value there. I think if you're doing like if you're just doing a straight pass through to OpenAI, um, there's probably less value there. Um, and then on the testing side, uh, on the testing side, it's interesting because we see people testing all across the spectrum. So what I mean by that is we see people testing end-to-end applications, but then also the individual components. Um, and I think, uh, I think for both, I wouldn't say like either one we test better. Like I think I think testing is kind of similar across those two. And by what I mean by that is like. If you have uh, if you have an assistant, um, you could test like just the user input and then what the user finally sees. Or there's maybe like a routing step where it chooses what tool to use, and so you could test that. And so for those different types of tests, I think we we support both of those pretty nicely. And obviously, like you know, I feel like a big part of of Langsmith is eval, which is something that you know feels like everyone's talking about these yeah. days. Um, and I'm curious, like you know, how do you characterize like the current state of eval? Like what can and can't we do today? You know, obviously the, the dream is just to have LMs, you know, evaluate themselves. Like where are we kind of in the, in the eval space as a whole? The, I, this is a great question. And we're spending a lot of time talking with teams about this. Um, I think there's a lot of questions that teams are grappling with. And so maybe just doing a quick rundown and we could probably do a whole podcast on this. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but I think there's a few key questions that we see teams thinking about. One is like, what uh so the, the the basic premise that most people are realizing is you need some data set and you need to test it against your system and so the first question is how do i get that data set um and so typically what we see teams doing um is hand labeling coming up with the first 20 or so examples then turning to kind of like production data and seeing edge cases that fail and incorporating those into the test set and so actually, similarly to the open source, like I'd say Langsmith does a lot and it's an all-in-one platform, but we see a ton of value in having that connectedness. And one of those right off the bat is this connection of like production traces that fail, either marked by thumbs down or get flagged through some other system, pull that into your eval set. So the first thing we, or first questions that we see teams thinking about is how do I gather this data set? Then there's how do I evaluate like a single data point? And for some, it's easy classification. You can use yeah. traditional ML metrics for a lot. It's not as easy, and so using LLMs to judge um, is is emerging as a popular technique. Definitely, uh, th- this this adds a, a interesting wrinkle because it's not perfect, and so there's like there still needs to be kind of like a human in the loop component. Um, and so, actually, I mean, maybe even backing up, I think like the goal would get to be would be to get to these automated metrics. We still see a lot of teams just 
looking at it and and compiling it there or scoring it and maybe counting them up and, and comparing things side by side. So we've invested a lot in this like human in the loop. How, how can humans best interact um, and facilitate the, this eval process? Then there's an interesting question of how you aggregate those metrics. Um, so do you want to have everything perfectly scored? Um, do you want to have, do you just want to see that it's better than the previous prompt that you were testing out or something like that? And that it completely depends. People are doing, you know, both if they have uh, if they have like a, a set of data points that they know they really need to get right, like 100% accuracy. Other times there's a more general thing and they kind of just like measure that. And then the last component is like, how often do you actually do this? Like, because it's expensive to do this and it's slow and there's error, it's error prone. And so um, I think we typically see people doing this largely before kind of like releases because there is still a big manual component to it. One of the things that we're thinking really heavily about is how to reduce that manual component enough so that you can run it. The goal would be in CI, like you run software unit tests. Um, I don't think we're quite there, but I think like pushing towards that, we're, we're working on a bunch of stuff there. It's interesting. It feels like the the manual part of uh, of actually reviewing a lot of the exceptions is where so much of the value comes from. We were talking with yeah. Linus from Notion. He's like, that's literally where we figure out everything about how these models work uh, when they do things that we don't expect them to do. Um, and so it feels like that, you know, today is kind of intention with like this idea of, well, it'd be really nice if it just kind of automated in the background and, and, uh, did what we needed it to do. A hundred percent. Yeah. And I think there's like, I think there is some stigma like, oh, you have to look at data points. Like, why don't you have an automated <laughs> eval or something? But I think there's so much like value that like, again, like it's just so early on in this space and everyone should be trying to like figure out how to, how to work with these models, how to grok these systems. And so looking at things provides not only the, the benefit of like, knowing how it did on this data point, but also gives you kind of like a deeper understanding into the system and all these new things that everyone's still trying to learn. And so, yeah, we've invested really, really heavily in making it easy to see the thought processes of these agents and the and the inputs and outputs of each step precisely for that reason. So it's easier for people to grok it because we don't think it's, we don't think it's bad. Like it, you, get, you get a lot of value from doing totally. that. We have a lot of listeners who are like thinking about how to do eval on their own products, you know, besides using Langsmith, uh, which obviously they should do. Uh, <laughs> is there anything that like you've seen like best practices emerging or, or folks that you think you're like, yeah, that, you know, company X does it this way. And that's, that seems super smart. Um, I was just chatting with Linus today. I think, that's I think looking at data is underrated. Similarly, just coming up with an evaluation data set is so valuable. Um, besides the fact that it gives you something to actually use, it also forces you to think about what you want the system to be doing. Um, sometimes I think, you know, again, LLMs, this great general purpose thing, you can come up with an idea, just throw it at it. Fantastic. You get started quickly, but like, what are you expecting it to actually do? Like, what are the edge cases it should handle? How do you expect users to be interacting with it? These are all questions you should be thinking about and coming up with an evaluation data set is a really good forcing function to do that. So I would say, yeah, just look at the data. And a big part of that is coming up with this evaluation data set. Yeah, it feels like almost at the start of your like product building journey, that's such a key part of figuring out like what you actually want to build. And it's really funny because in traditional ML and data science, you had to do that right. before you could build a model. <laughs> and now you don't. And so I think it's, uh, you know, you still should do it. And do you feel like we're, you know, is this kind of manual, you know, reviewing of data? Is that like a moment in time thing? Because we're still not like, you know, these models will get better and better. Like when we get to like GPT-7, like how do you think eval ends up working? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I, I, I don't know, is the honest answer. I think they'll, there's, it, it's definitely probably more valuable now as we're trying, as it's still just so early and so fast moving and, and probably as these things mature, get more reliable, 
hopefully we start see, seeing like more complex systems being built up around them. It, you know, I, you'll you'll have to you you won't be able to do that to some extent. So so I would say um, it's probably more important now than it will be in a few years. But I still think it will be somewhat important in a few years. But I don't know. It's really impossible to predict things. So totally. And as you built an eval product, like how have you thought about like to what extent eval is generalizable? I imagine like, yeah. you know, across different use cases, there's some things that hold true. Like you need to come up with your your own uh, data testing data set. Uh, you know, on the other hand, use cases can be so different. Yeah. Um, how have you thought about that? Yeah, that that's a that's a great question and a great point. And before this, I was working at an MLOps company, which faced a lot of the same issues, arguably more so, because I think in MLOps, you, you know, at least with LLMs, they're text or messages. And so, well, now they're multimodal. Um, so maybe <laughs> that's, but, but I think there's a slightly more uniform kind of like input output schema. Um, with MLOps, you're really doing there. It's, it's really tough to come up with kind of like unified things. Um, but yeah, I think it comes down to figuring out what the, uh, I, I, especially at this point in time, I don't think you can afford to be, have your abstractions too high level. Um, but I also think you want to be somewhat opinionated in how people should do things, um, or at least like what's important. Um, and so I think practically what that means for us is like low level, really focus on what we think are the low level important things. Those would be kind of like gathering data sets, seeing what's going on. Um, we're completely kind of like code first. So, so we do have some UI components, but everything's exposed via API. We're, we're very much targeting developers here. Um, framework agnostic, so you can use LangSmith with or without LangChain. What we assume is the system that you're scoring, we really just treat as a function. So like we don't make any assumptions about the number of LLM calls or anything under the hood. And what you provide as an evaluator, um, we just treat as a function as well. So uh, you know we're, we're, we're building more scaffolding around certain things. We're building more scaffolding around LLM as a judge-assisted things, because we see that being um, popular and easily parameterizable by a prompt. But at, at the core, yeah, just just really simple and hopefully, uh, you know, generalizable components. But it makes it tough because because I absolutely, if we think about LangSmith, there's two components to it. One's this like tracing observability and the other is the testing. And comparing them is is really, really interesting. People can get value out of the tracing and observability like it within seconds of setting up. Like it's just like super clear magic moment. Testing an eval, like, you still have to do a lot of work to get there. You have to get that data set. You have to think about the metrics you're using. And so there is still a lot of burden on, on the user. Um, and, and so, you know, if there's too much burden on the user, then like what value are you even providing them? <laughs> and so I think there's some aspect there. I think with a lot of this like human in the loop component as well and like reviewing and just making it easy to understand, there, there's value that we can provide there. Um, but it's definitely it's definitely tougher than the observability space, I think. Do you think you ultimately, like, I feel like there's all these folks independently coming up with their own testing data sets and their own yeah. edge cases. And there's probably a lot of like great learnings that are that are happening in that process. Like, do you feel like you end up facilitating some like best practices across that? Or like, how do you see that kind of getting shared today? Or is everyone independently kind of coming up with their own? Um, I mean, so everyone's definitely coming up with data sets that are specific to them. Um, like, I, I think you have to for serious application. Um, there's probably some sharing of metrics in that like people are using LLM as a judge. There's just, there's probably some general prompts of like student teacher. I don't know if they're exactly the same prompt or the similar ones. Um, but, but then within data sets, for example, if let's, if we talk about RAG, for example, there's a bunch of common kind of like RAG failure modes and failure cases. I think there's some discourse around what those are. I think honestly, that's one of the things that 
we can maybe do better. And I think we probably, I mean, my, my view on the landscape as a whole is like, it's some best practices are starting to emerge. Um, and I think the first like six months, just tons of experimentation. I think the next six months, people were like, all this experimentation is cool, but how do I actually get this into production? And so I think now we're starting to see some things go into production, some pretty impressive ones too. Like Elastic had an assistant um, that we worked with them on and like it's an assistant in production by a very large company, right? And so that's awesome. And so we're starting to see things come into production. So then I think we're starting to see some of the best practices emerge. We should probably do a better job of facilitating some of the discussions and sharing those learnings. And we have some things in the work there. But that's my, yeah, that's my general view on, I guess, the, the hype cycle of AI over time. I guess switching gears from the eval side to the agent side, I'd love to hear your thoughts on the agent landscape right now. What is sort of possible? What is not possible at this point? And when do you think that actually changes? Agents are obviously super interesting. We've done stuff. I, I think people think of Langchain maybe as an agent framework, kind of. I guess we do so much, it's tough to know what people think of us as. <laughs> um, but I think we were, we were always doing agent-like stuff from the beginning. We were never full-on uh, kind of like auto GPT or anything like that. Um, and, and so I think what's kind of happened is there was an explosion of interest in agents, auto GPT leading the charge there. Um, and, and I think uh, the... I think what people realized there, and so maybe there's two types of agents. There's this super generalizable autonomous agent, and then there's more focused ones. And so I think a um, lot of interest in the auto autonomous ones to start. More focused ones seems more practically kind of like ready today. And so I, I feel like we had a full hype cycle with uh, with generalizable agents. <laughs> there, yeah, <laughs> BBAGI, yeah. yeah. Um, and and so I think people maybe relatively quickly realize, you know, hey, like you gotta, you want like a custom prompt, you want it to have five tools maybe, um, really focused on an objective. And I feel like people were talking about that and realizing that maybe summer, late summer, early fall. Um, one one kind of like interesting thing that we've seen is just, um, and then maybe adding in another thing, there's this idea of multi-agent frameworks as well. So we've seen Autogen, we've seen Crew AI kind of like pop up. Um, and And I think some reaction to that is like, well, if AutoGPT didn't work, how is putting five of them working together going to work? Um, and I think uh, the important distinction there is that a lot of what these multi-agent frameworks are, are really kind of like controlled flows between a specific prompt that maybe has access to some specific tools and maybe jumping ahead to some of the stuff we're doing there. Like we think of this as kind of like a state machine that people are putting together. So if you think of agents as a state machine, then you can enforce more control over some of the transition probabilities between where it is. So if you're in a chatbot, if you're in a customer support chatbot, you can have a really dedicated prompt for if it's just kind of like uh, starting the conversation with the user and trying to gather you know, their name, their account ID. But then if you transition, you can transition to something where it's like they're trying to debug an issue or something. And so there's this kind of like controlled flow between things. Um, and, and I'd say like a lot of the things that we see in production um, or starting to get reliable are this, these more kind of like state machine type things. Um, so one of the things we released recently is LangGraph, um, which is a framework for constructing agents as graphs, agents as state machines, same, same similar things. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm pretty bullish on this as a future direction just because I think, and, and like, I, I think all the multi-agent frameworks are, are state machines as well. Um, and so I think this idea, if you think of it as state machines, I think it's more palatable because you realize kind of like how you can enforce 
specific transition probabilities, what the specific states are. It's a nice, it's a very nice mental model. I feel like so much of the power of Langchain, and like when I hear you talk about it publicly, is like it really shines in like these chain of calls examples or using agents or more kind of complex use cases. Um, it feels like, you know, last year there were a lot of developers building basic like chat your docs or things that might be a little more sim- like simpler than that. What have you kind of observed in the, like, does it feel like we're starting to turn the corner on like more complex applications and anything particular you've seen that you're like, you know, I guess you mentioned the Elastic one, any other ones you've seen that you're like, that's a really cool, like sophisticated use of, of all the stuff we built at Langchain. Yeah, I think, um, my, yeah, so, okay. So my, my view on this is, um, there's maybe like three different categories of builders that we see, and it's a little bit different between them. I'd say on one, there's like the super early Gen AI native startups and, and, and companies, and they're being like super like forward thinking about the types of things that they're building. So they're building agents, they're making them consumer facing, um, they're uh, uh, kind of putting them out there. Um, they're all super early, so it's a little bit tough to tell. Then there's maybe like uh, digital native startups somewhere in the middle. They're, um, I think the main things that, they have uh, uh, largely shipped, have kind of been like single LLM calls. But I think now is when we're starting to see more of, I mean, even like Notion QA, I think is really well done. And that's maybe the, like that's a really production ready, kind of like at scale, individual personalized, kind of like chat over your knowledge base. And yeah, I think that's super well done. I forget when they shipped that late last year or something like that. So I think we're starting to see things like this come come online from companies like like that. I think the Elastic Assistant would be another great example of that. Um, and then there's larger enterprises. And one thing that I think is really interesting here is a lot of the work that's happening is internal. Um, and because it's internal, um, you, can, uh, you can take a little bit more risks in terms of what you're building. So we're seeing like assistant-like platforms uh, being built for internal purposes, similar to like the, the GPT store um, type thing. Um, but hooked up to your data and and uh, your uh, tool, your APIs, um, running whatever language model you want. So, so OpenGPTs is a project we did that basically recreates the assistant, the GPT store like experience. Um, and we're seeing some companies adopt that for internal purposes for the. And so, I don't know exactly like where you'd put that in the classification, yeah. right? Like it's still internal, but it is pretty advanced. Like it's a lot. They're building platforms to allow people to create their own chatbots with their own data and with their own APIs. Um, and yeah, I think we're seeing more and more of that as well. And, and like, do you have like a go-to kind of like starter kit you recommend to folks? Like when you're talking to an enterprise that's maybe early in their in their journey, uh, besides re- reading through all the lane chain docs, like where do you kind of point them? Um, we've tried to put together a bunch of templates to get started with like uh, uh, specific use cases. Because one thing that we have seen is that lane chain is, is very broad and, and has a lot of different components. Um, and so we've tried to put together a bunch of templates and then also a bunch of use case documentation for question answering, SQL, extraction, um, general chatbots. We've also tried to do kind of like uh, use case repos almost. So like chat Langchain is a really good resource for particular things, right? For like question answering over a single knowledge base. OpenGPTs is a really good resource for a particular thing. Um, and, and so I think uh, it kind of depends on what they're interested in. but basically. I feel like over the past six months, we've done a lot of work on the basic kind of like orchestration layer um, of Langchain expression language and LangGraph. We've also done a lot of work on some of the table stakes, observability and testing stuff. Um, and so now we're starting to focus more on these use case things so that when we talk to larger companies and they're wondering where to get started, we can easily point them to something that's a bit more specific than 
go read about the you know thousand recent advances in AI or something like that. You mentioned that Langchain has a lot of different parts. Are there any parts that you think are underutilized today? One of the parts that I think is underrated or underutilized is the example selectors. Um, so we've seen few shot examples be a really powerful way to improve the performance of applications, um, particularly in cases where you need structured output or where you have really complex instructions that you want to follow. Um, and oftentimes what you can do is you can hard code like one or two or three examples. But another thing that you can do is you can dynamically select like what the top what, what like three similar examples to the current question are. Um, and I think this is a bit, I, I think this is a bit of a pipe dream. We're not seeing this yet, but I think the holy grail of a lot of ML ops, I would say, is kind of like continual learning. And, and, and so I think this is a really interesting way to try to achieve that. Basically, you see, maybe you see things that the user thought, you, this all can also get into personalization. You see what a user likes, doesn't like. You pull them in as few shot examples. You then you build up this data database of like 200 few shot examples. You dynamically sec select the most recent ones or relevant ones, put those into the prompt and use that to like improve the application over time in a super lightweight way. Um, and so this is that's a really cool flywheel that I think we want to be building towards. Um, you can still use example selectors in a more kind of like simple way. And I don't think people are using those enough. I mean, I imagine like one interesting part of building this business is you have this like tension where the space moves so fast that you could kind of stop at any one moment in time and be like, well, most people are building, here's the set of things, like techniques that are out there. Most people are building this way. Let's yeah. optimize around that. Or you could be like, well, in three months, you know, there's going to be a whole host of other crazy different things. Um, let's not like solidify too much because it's, you know, and I imagine that's something you're constantly thinking about. Like, how do you think about balancing kind of building for what's here and now versus staying nimble and flexible for what crazy advances are, are you know, around the corner? Yeah, I, I think, um, I mean, it's a balance. I don't have any great insights. Maybe one is like, you have to build. Like, I think like early on, people are like, oh, like rag's a hack or these MapReduce things are a hack. It's like, yeah, it's a hack, but it's needed now. So like, what am I supposed to do? Like not build my application because it's going to change. Um, so I think like you have to build would, would, would probably be like first and foremost. Um, and then, yeah, I think like a lot of, um, a lot of what we spent time on over the past six months is thinking, carefully about kind of like what the right abstractions are. Um, and I would say like as a framework early on, we had, uh, we, we didn't have the flexible kind of like orchestration layer of link chain expression language or of link graph. It was very much higher level chains that had different parameters. And if you wanted to change the internals of the chain, you had to modify the source code or add a different parameter or something like that. And, uh, we saw, we saw people, um, want to, want to customize that. And so we spend a lot of time in these more flexible, lower level things. Um, there, there's also, uh, the, there's also like the individual components themselves. So like the retriever abstractions and the vector store abstractions and the model abstractions, those, I think we've done a better job at. Um, I think the retriever abstraction, and I think what we've aimed for there is, is really kind of like, um, I was actually chatting with someone about this today, but we've, we've aimed for kind of like really dead, simple base class abstractions. Um, and you could argue that's bad because then for a specific implementation, you have to do more work. So the example um, that that Andrew provided today when I was chatting with him was like, for language models, there's this con common concept of like retries. We actually have, re we don't have retries in the base class. We have it in the individual classes. And that's a little bit annoying because if I want to add a new class, then I have to add retries to it. But that's kind of nice because we don't make any assumptions about how retries are handled or the logic for that in the base class. And so if you wanted to do it a different way, you could do it there. Um, and so I think for the base classes, we've really optimized for like really, really simple. Um, 
And I think we did, I think we did a pretty good job at that. I don't think we did an amazing job at having like an actual flexible orchestration layer until about six months ago when we released like LangChain expression language and we've improved it a lot since then. And I'd also say, uh, you know, we very consciously waited. We, we released LangChain 0.1 early January. We very consciously waited until after multimodal kind of came out um, because <laughs> we were worried it would mess up all our abstractions. Um, when chat messages came out, you know, we had to rewrite a lot of the internals. And um, luckily, multimodal wasn't actually that large of a change in some of our abstractions. But yeah, I think uh, that's a little bit about how we think about it. And also, you know, we've released... Playing chain 0.1, we think some of the abstractions are more solid now. Hopefully OpenAI doesn't completely prove me wrong right after I say this. <laughs> I saw the 0.1, I was like, I thought they're at like one or two at this <laughs> yeah, yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, we wanted to wait until after that. And I think, um, yeah, we'll see. I mean, it's it, but this is so tricky as well, because like we have a few things we want to do for 0.2 and kind of like push ahead but there's so much work that we can kind of like do to improve the existing state of things and i think right now we're probably more focused on that we're more focused on kind of like um the uh, improving the documentation improving the use cases i think again like open ai is gonna probably prove me wrong but i think things are more stable now than over the summer so yeah over the past few months like or over the summer over the past year up until a few months ago super hectic we were heavily we were way more heavily on the on the like don't solidify anything, kind of like be be very abstract and, and, and vague. We do think things are more stable now. We move to a stable release. We're, we're moving in that direction. Could be wrong, but that's kind of like our read on, this, on the state of things. You mentioned the space is fast moving and we're seeing some parts of Langchain and other AI companies where there's sort of an equivalent in the traditional applications. We can take observability as an example. How do you sort of think that will evolve over time from a competitive landscape and you know, them potentially going into the LLM side of things? And, you know, if not, how would you sort of articulate the LLM problem space being vastly different than the traditional application side? Yeah, I, I think there's, um, I think there's definitely parallels. I, I think, I think the space is super early, super fast moving, um, not to repeat it for the seventh time, but that is, that is like, when people ask, I like, with you there. When, when people ask, like, hey, what are your thoughts on the space? Like, that's the only thing I have confidence in. Like, I can't predict what OpenAI is going to do, but I know the space is early and super fast. Um, so, so I really do think there's a ton and, and, and I think, you know, I think it will be a hugely like impactful space. And, and so I think there's a ton of opportunity to build not only applications using this technology, but I think, I think it is a pretty different technology in, in some key ways. It's, it's non-deterministic compared to ML. It's a lot of like APIs and prompting and these are new things um, compared to traditional observability. Some, so, so this is kind of interesting because Datadog, um, you know, awesome player in that space, they came out with kind of like an LLM product. I think like right before we released LangSmith and they had an integration into LangChain. Um, and and we've heard some company we've basically heard some companies want to use both for different things. Like I just think the value props are different at this point in time. Um, I think we're really focused. Like we see the blockers being people don't understand what these applications are doing, and so they can't iterate fast enough and with confidence. And so we want to give them the confidence and the tools to iterate quickly. Datadog I think is fantastic for kind of like some of the system level monitoring and stuff. Um, and, and even like just aggregate metrics of latency and things like that. Um, and so maybe, you know, as we push more and more into monitoring, maybe there'll be more overlap there. But I think right now the value props are different enough. We've seen people use both of us kind of like together. I think in general, 
we're not super focused on competition because the space is just so early. We really think there's so much value to be created here. Um, and we think there's a bunch of different ways to do it. And we're doing some of it. Some other people are doing some of it. There's probably like 80% that no one's doing because no one really knows what that is yet because it's still so early. You recently, I mean, we talked about Lang Graph, uh, Lang, uh, Lang Smith, and you know, I'm sure there's a ton of other Lang products. <laughs> One that you launched recently was Lang Serve to deploy yes. apps. Um, we'd love to hear sort of why you decided to, to release that and sort of where that fits in relative to other um, uh, ways to do it in the space. Yeah, we, we, want, um, we want that to be the easiest way to deploy kind of like Langchain applications. Um, I think the, like we didn't release this for quite a while, I would say. Like I think like one of the first, um, you know, when, when you think about how to make a company around Langchain, one of the first things you think about is like a hosting platform for that and the deployment. We honestly saw like the, the observability and the testing and eval being a bigger pain point for people. And so that's why we focused more on that. Um, then kind of like, as we saw people want to get in production, we did, we did see some pull there. And so that's kind of like why we invested in it. Um, I'd say like it, it's, there's a few things that are a part of it. It's, it's a wrapper around fast API um, and some other technologies there. So it plugs into a pretty common kind of like Python stack. Um, we, you know, we can introspect the, the link chain runnables. Um, now that we have this common kind of like orchestration layer, there's a common kind of like input output schema that we can easily define. They all have the same kind of like invoke batch and stream endpoints so so after like if we did this in if we did this last may it would have been really tough because like you know we didn't have that really solid foundation i think with ling chain expression language and some of the interfaces around that um, which also power LangGraph. we do um, so i think we set the foundation there i think we were focused on things that we viewed as bigger blockers in in uh uh, uh lang smith with lang serve um i think it makes it easy to deploy. And then another interesting thing, um, which I'm pretty bullish on, is we, we like quickly spin up a playground um, for you as well um, and to interact with the application. And that's not going to be like an end user facing thing for like real hardcore kind of like apps, but it's super useful for giving it to people to test out. Um, so sharing it. One of the really cool things we've seen is that um, building these applications is a really cross-functional kind of like effort. So there's engineers, there's data scientists. There's also like PMs, non-technical people, subject matter experts who want to interact with these. And they're often the best people to leave feedback on things, test things out. And so, you know, in Langsmith, we have like annotation cues and stuff like that to help with people for, uh, to, to, to annotate things. We've, I view these playgrounds as similar things to let anyone try it out and interact with it. Um, and so, yeah, there's, you know, I think there's a few different components. One's that like, battle-tested, fast API hook-in framework for deployment, um, which we do think scales well. The other is like facilitating this cross-functional collaboration. How big is your team right now? We are 18. How, how, how do you, uh, one, keep all these lengths, you know, going? And then <laughs> uh, how do you like think about allocating relative, you know, it, it seems like you guys are doing uh, a really impressive amount of stuff. How do you think about where to kind of point people? Yeah, I think, um, so we're, we're about 50-50 right now between kind of like Langsmith and then other things. And the other things, most of it, um, most of it's kind of like on the existing open source. There are a few efforts on kind of like more exploratory, newer things like LangGraph came out of an exploratory, newer things. Uh, OpenGPTs came out of an exploratory, newer thing. Um, so uh, we're about 50-50 between those. Um, the, fo the focus in open source, uh, really fluctuates. Like we, we knew we really had to solidify the base kind of like orchestration layer. So I'd say over the fall, we were really focused on that, less focused on kind of like use case things. 
now we feel like we've caught up there. We're a little bit behind on use cases, so we need to switch over to that. Um, and and on on Ling Smith, I think when it started off, it was probably it, it was Ankush, my co-founder, has really been leading all of that. I think when it started off, um, it was definitely a smaller percentage of the company, but we've seen really good demand for that, and we've seen really good interest in that, and and we use it all the time internally because we think it provides a lot of value. Um, so we, we've kind of like ramped up our investment in that over time. Um, and then like, you know, right now we're kind of split there between kind of like feature development on newer things as well as uh, scaling and enterprise readiness because we're starting to get into those types of conversations and that there's a lot of work to do there. Totally. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't have a great answer aside from I think the thing that we're really focused on is how can we provide the most value to people? Um, and so that kind of like direct, like right now, you know, back in the day I, for opens or a few months ago, back in the day, <laughs> Man, um, <laughs> it's, it's dog years in the AI world. So we call it a year ago, <laughs> a, a few months ago in open source, you know, we saw that people like people were struggling because we didn't have good orchestration. So the, the, the highest value thing that we could be doing to give value to other people was to focus on this composability aspect. Um, Lang Smith, we saw providing a lot of value and so we're upping our investment there so we're really focused on just where we can provide the most value and allocating resources there i'm curious if like last year it felt like it was maybe the year of like chat your data chat your documents um you know for demos and, and companies putting into production like any predictions of kind of application archetypes that you think we'll see a lot more of this year i think like the i think we'll see like more complex chatbots um i think a lot of folks who we're talking to do kind of like have these more complex chatbots that are represented as kind of like state machines and and they have different you know customer support bot with different stages that it goes through uh an, an ai therapist that has different stages it goes through um i'd say these are pretty different from like traditional kind of like simple rag chatbots so i think we'll start to see more stuff there i also think we'll probably start to see like longer running jobs as well um there's some cool projects that we collaborate with in the open source so um gpt researcher um and the same team did gpt newsletter as well and so both of these are like longer running jobs that take maybe a minute or two um and i think there's some interesting and, and they generate like a, a first draft of a research report or a first draft of a newspaper or something like that and i think there's some interesting considerations there um i think You've got to find some UX or application where you don't need an instantaneous response. Um, because I think in order to do more complicated things, you need to do multiple LLM calls. You need to check itself. It takes time. Um, and so I think there I think people I, I don't think I don't think people have found the right applications or UXs for these longer running, still first draft type of things, because they can be wrong. Um, but I'm hopeful that maybe I think we're seeing some cool experimentation there. I'm hopeful that over this year we'll see applications that kind of like fit that bill. It's interesting. It's almost like a design challenge or, or user experience challenge to get someone comfortable with, you know, leave for for a few minutes or however long it takes. And I think all the most interesting work right now is in UX for these AI applications. I think that's where uh, there's a ton of innovation to be done. There's a ton of just like figuring out how do people want to interact with these things that isn't really known. Yeah. Is there a UX that caught your eye recently? Um, yeah, there was a uh, cool... Uh, tweet that i saw the other week um i'm blanking on the name um but it was basically this uh it was uh the tagline i think was like an ai native spreadsheet um so you'd kind of like uh you'd kind of like fill in one column and then fill in one column fill out the column headers and then basically click and drag like you would an excel macro 
But in order to fill in each cell, a separate agent would be spun up. Um, and so you'd be executing like 100 different agents in parallel, and they'd be populating the spreadsheet one cell at kind of like a time. And I think that was a really cool example of kind of like, um, I think it kind of gets to this, uh, and you know, it would take, it wouldn't happen instantaneously, it would take a few seconds, uh, 10 seconds, something like that, maybe longer. Um, but I think that's a good example of how, uh, yeah, you can have like many different tasks going that then you're inspecting the results after as opposed to chat where you're kind of like constantly in the UX one, one or you're you're in kind of like the loop one question yeah. all the time. Sounds like it could really help your sports analytics use case. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what are your thoughts on like that example, the spreadsheet one in terms of inference costs? And, you know, obviously if it's spinning up an agent for every single sort of cell is doing, yeah. it could, you know, add up really quickly. So how do you think startups should should handle that in the future? When do you think it will just go down enough that they won't have to worry about it. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think you can do that at scale, but I also, I think if you're a startup, you probably shouldn't be focused on, like costs will go down, latency will go down. Um, when exactly, I don't know, but OpenAI has been really good, and really impressive about cutting costs. Um, and yeah, I, I think my advice to most people is generally like try to build it with GPT-4. If you, and then, and then if, if you can do that, and if that has product market fit, then worry about nice problem the other have. things. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> it's a good problem. To have. There's a really good, uh, I think I heard this from Stan, the founder of Dust. Mm -hmm. um, and it was a really nice quote, which was, uh, no GPUs before PMF. So no GPUs before product mm -hmm. market fit. Probably a similar thing here where like use GPT-4 until product market fit or something like that. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I know uh, nothing in AI is predictable, but as these models get better and better, are there any things that we're doing today that you think will be obviated away? I mean, the, the context window bit is definitely one piece. Um, I think you'll just be able to have maybe some, it, I, I think you'll always need retrieval. Um, but I think like some of the tricks around managing kind of like conversation history and summarizing some of the previous ones, um, I think that might go away and you'll just be able to put all of it kind of like unless you're having like really long conversations <laughs> but i think for the most part you'll be able to put most of it um in there so maybe some some of the management of kind of like the chat messages stuff will go away um i think one area for improvement it's not that it will stop doing it today but it's something we can't do today i think like i don't i don't think the multimodal models are quite good enough for a lot of the really precise knowledge work that people want to do so i think they struggle with we're not all going to be living in the Google demo world. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think that's coming out tomorrow. Thor Ultra is coming out tomorrow, <laughs> so we'll see. Um, but yeah, I think like a lot of the cool things that people want to do with the multi-model ones is like, like do extraction and it still doesn't have good spatial, good enough spatial awareness. So I think, um, I think we'll see more of that. Um, that's less like people will stop doing. Um, RAG, I think people will do. Um, so I don't think that will go away. Um, the state machine type stuff is like kind of interesting. I think you'll still want to have some aspect of that. I think you can make the argument that like as these models get better and as they have longer context windows, you could just put all those instructions in a single prompt um, and then it could recognize what state it's in automatically. And the I think there's I think there's maybe like two arguments against that. One is just like, will the models actually get that good and some of these prompts are really complex and some of the instructions are really complex and, and some of the times like you're doing like if you have um instructions to follow and they're really long some of the times you're doing rag over the instructions and what the the database you're accessing depends on the state you're in so so i don't think the state machine things will go away because 
that. And then another argument against them going away is I actually think those are like a really helpful mental model. Um, like Autogen, when it came out, um, again, like going back to what I said earlier, I didn't understand why multi-agent would work. Um, yeah. But then it, it's really about the mental model and it's a great mental model. Um, and so I think they nailed that. Um, and so I think that mental model is just really helpful for developers for building. So I don't think the state machine type things will go away. Um, I do, oh, I, I, I hope there's more kind of like, there's more and better kind of like uh, function calling slash structured extraction of things. Like hopefully the days of saying, you know, write this in JSON or <laughs> Poppy will die. <laughs> hopefully those are done. <laughs> um, and uh, so hopefully that'll that'll go away. Um, off top of heads, I think that's what I come up with. Yeah, when GPC-9 comes out, we'll bring you back on here and, and grade how you predicted. F, F, I'll give myself. <laughs> I think GPC-9 will do the grading. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> awesome. Well, look, uh, I'm sure we could talk about LangChain for days, but we like to end these uh, with a few quick fire questions. Cool. So the first one is, what do you think is overhyped and underhyped in AI? Overhyped? I'd probably say multimodal at the moment. I don't think it's quite good enough for a lot of the real use cases that people want. Underhyped is maybe few shot prompting going back to that. Like I think like a lot of the teams that we talk with that are having success are doing that. Um, and uh, I think more people should be. What's been like the the biggest surprise in building Langchain in terms of, I'm curious, like one thing you thought would work that didn't end up working and maybe one thing that you were like this, you know, maybe it was a throwaway thing and actually worked quite well. One thing that I was definitely wrong about was the importance of streaming and having that built into the orchestration framework in the first place. Um, this seems kind of obvious now, um, but I think uh, I remember chatting over the summer um, and, or, or not necessarily, yeah, I guess the importance of it is a good way to phrase it. Like we, we had some composability, but the composability didn't like work well with, it wasn't streaming first. And so like you could compose things together, but then, you couldn't stream the results. And so all the classes that had good streaming, it was done in kind of like an ad hoc way. Um, and Nuno, who's done a lot of work on our team, um, I remember pushed for that super hard in LangChain Expression Language, which he helped really write, um, has uh, streaming as kind of like a first class citizen there. And so and we've invested a lot in streaming. We've invested a lot in streaming. Um, and, and so I just think the importance of the importance and the difficulty of doing that right in an orchestration layer framework. Um, yeah. Uh, good thing. Good thing Nuno's on board. Um, <laughs> open GPTs might be one that I think got more kind of like attention and and uh, kind of like positive response than I expected. Like we we kind of like um, the story behind that is we uh, there was like the leaks of OpenAI's uh, Dev Day like the weekend before, <laughs> and so um, I, I uh, slacked Nuno and was like, Hey, it would be cool to try to do some of these leaks and see if we could like recreate it in an open source way. <laughs> and so I think we released it like that day or the day after or something. Um, and yeah, people really liked it. Um, it's a cool idea. Um, I didn't, uh, I think people, especially a lot of enterprises really want to have control over the systems that they're building, I would say. And I don't think I appreciated that enough. Um, and actually I also don't, I think the thing I got wrong there was um, there's so many different things you can do in LangChain. We weren't doing a good job of showing people how to do the interesting things. And I think that might actually be why, like you could always do the things that OpenGPTs did. You just have to like really know the framework. And so I think that's something, maybe that maybe that's why it kind of like took off more than I thought it would. As an open source founder, I think you'll have a lot of uh, thoughts on this next question, but how ubiquitous do you think open source models will be? I think they'll be more ubiquitous than they are now. I think there's a lot of hype around them. 
I think for the interesting things, people are still using OpenAI, but there is a ton of interest in uh, local models, local agents doing things. They're just not quite there at the moment. I think once they are, like there's a ton of, um, like a lot of the really personalized, ask your documents, chat with uh, uh, some sort of, uh, whether it be kind of like a coach or, or mentor type persona or, or just like pure knowledge. People want that to be local. They want that to not go elsewhere. Um, and yeah, so it, so I think, um, yeah, I think they'll, it, yeah, it, I, I think there'll be a bunch of really cool applications there that are desktop apps that run locally. Yeah. Which, uh, AI startup outside of Langchain are you most excited about? Um, there's a few. I really like New Computer by Sam Whitmore. I think they're doing really cool things around memory, which I'm very interested in. I think Fireworks I like. They're doing, They. I think both them and Together, I would say, are doing very good jobs at uh, kind of like the hosting, fine-tuning of open source models. Olama is really cool. Um, yeah, we do a bunch of stuff with them, and I think their their models are awesome. Hearth AI, I think, is another cool one. They're at the application layer. They're doing a bunch of stuff around relationship management. Um, so, so. I think on the application layer, I'm really interested in ones that I guess have a high level of personalization. Um, so computer and hearth, I think both have that. And I think that's, uh, one of my, one of my hot takes is that, you know, I, th- I think everyone kind of recognizes that we're still in the first wave of like AI apps. And there's probably a second similar to kind of like the iPhone. It took like a little bit to figure out what the killer apps were. I wonder if like that, like personalization at a user level is like what's missing for them to kind of like really take on. And so I'm super interested by that and super interested by companies that are doing things in that space. Um, yeah, Jacob and I would probably agree with that. We've actually talked about that before. So have maybe. You, have you seen any cool companies doing things? We've seen that? companies that have tried to make it easier to do personalized models on a per user basis. Hmm. Um, are they doing that like fine tuning or through like just context? Uh, like context individual lores for each one. Interesting. Yeah. yeah. That's so super it's, interesting. It's really well. early though. I mean, these have just popped up in the last, you know, six months or so. Yeah, I think the idea around personalization and whether it's through some sort of rag or some sort of fine tuning is a really haven't heard enough kind of like discussed about the fees. I think both are way harder than just like fine tuning a single model, obviously. But like I think like no, I haven't seen anyone really doing stuff there except I think new computers probably doing the most. Yeah, I don't think they're fine tuning things. I guess I'm curious, like if you had stayed at Robust Intelligence and yeah. were leaving now to start, you know, and let's say, you know, someone else had built Langchain and so you were more focused on the application side, like yes. what application would you go build? Something around personalization or memory. Yeah. Um, I think like the idea that I have here is like a journal app that remembers things about you. Um, we, we may release a demo app of this because I think it's really cool. I think like personalization and memory is, is I, I think it's like, I think it's really important and I think it's really intellectually interesting. Um, but then I think a journal app is a really nice uh, uh, kind of like UX for it as well. Um, you hear like one of the main complaints about character AI is it doesn't remember things about you. Okay, sure. I think part of the difficulty about remembering things is figuring out like what's important or not. Like if you have a random chat, like I'm not going to necessarily say important things all the time. I'm going to say, hey, what's up? Stuff like that. With a journal app. And the, so, okay, I think we will release a demo app of this. But the UX that I'm imagining is you write your journal entry that's going to be chock full of like really interesting and personal things, right? So you have a good basis there. Then the AI starts a conversation with you about that and then pulls in previous memories of previous journals um, or, or yep, yeah, I mean, previous journals and previous interactions. Yeah. And then you have a chat with it. And so there's that component, but the journaling aspect comes first. So you're kind of like in that mindset. 
So that would, I would, that's exactly what I would build. And who knows if it would work, but I'd build that to start and try. <laughs> that's it. super cool. Um, and then my last question is, you know, I feel like LangChain's just so been at the center of like everything happening in the developer space in Gen AI. And I feel like you also have kind of become this like celebrity within the community. Like, <laughs> what's that been like? <laughs> it's been, um, it's been, it's been interesting. <laughs> like I, I hadn't done open source before this. Um, I hadn't, I had like 200 Twitter followers when this started. Um, I think it's been, I, I think it really is just like a really fun time to be building things at the end of the day. It's that. And so I think like having the opportunity to even like do this podcast with you guys or like interact with Swix, like, like all these things are just like awesome. I think it's a super fun time. I think there's a lot to build. Um, and I'm really just trying to have kind of like as much fun as I can. So, um, and then the last question, I mean, this has been awesome today. I'm sure a lot of our users would want to learn more about you and LangChain. Uh, where should they go for that? We have a blog, blog.langchain.dev, um, where we post a bunch of stuff. Um, and then Twitter is probably the, oh, Twitter and then YouTube. We've been actually investing a lot in uh, YouTube content, kind of to the point around, um, there's a lot of things you can do with LangChain. How do you help people kind of like do those things? We've found videos to be a really good format for that. And so we're investing a lot in YouTube. We're doing some series on like explaining rad concepts. We're doing some others like build an application from scratch. Um, so YouTube, the blog, and then Twitter are probably the main channels. Right. And you guys have a big release that I think will be uh, you know concurrent with this. Uh, anything you want to plug there around that? Yeah, we're releasing LangSmith GA. I think it's uh, I think it's a really really good product. I think it's probably better than LangChain in some senses. Um, works with LangChain without LangChain. Um, and I think the tracing and observability we've, uh, put a lot of effort into. So I would, I would check that out. I think it's pretty quick time to value there. And then the testing stuff, as I mentioned, um, I think there's more effort there. If you, if you, if you're running into issues or if you want to work through some of the problems with us, also reach out to us. We're happy to do that. Jordan, that was a fun one. Yeah, no, it was great. I was looking forward to that for a while. Yeah. I feel like, uh, Langchain and Harrison are just so at the epicenter of everything happening in the AI world that you could, you know, we could talk to them for like a day. Yeah, I mean, aside from OpenAI, they they really sort of got this ecosystem going in the first place. I feel like there was so much from that episode that was that was super interesting. Like, I loved the, you know, the part about evals and this idea that, you know, maybe today people are coming up with these data sets to test like afterwards, but it's like actually... You know, ideally, if you're building a product at the very beginning of that product, you're figuring out what do you exactly do you want it to do? And then you basically have come up with your eval data set. And then, you know, I also felt like uh, I loved his part, which I feel like we've heard a lot of times now, which is like, don't use, you know, GPUs or, you know, until you have product market fit. Or I think Arvin's version of this from Perplexity was like, worry about being a rapper actually after when you have a product that actually works. Totally. I mean, I think there's a lot of lessons to go from just sort of non-AI startups and really focusing in on the pain point, finding that product market fit, and then sort of scaling it from there. Totally. Um, and also just, I mean, one of my favorite lines from the whole thing was I feel like, you know, you can intellectualize all day about like, will RAG still be around? Like, is this kind of approach to doing things still relevant? Is all this prompt engineering just going to be obviated? And I guess you could just think about that all day and and wait and never do anything. And Harrison was like, you got to build. Like at some point, like whether it's going to be there in six months or not, like you got to get going. That, that was also my favorite quote. That and just, I can't predict anything, yeah. you know? Um, and so- If he can't predict it, what, what I know, exactly. do us mortals have? <laughs> I mean, he's literally at the center of it all. So I, I think he's right though. I think, you know, you're not going to be able to- really get those lessons and understand what customers are, want uh, in terms of what they need without just building and going and talking to them. 
Um, so I, I give them a lot of credit for that. Totally. And it was interesting to hear, you know, I feel like we've had some folks be super bullish on multimodal and in the discourse generally, it's like, oh, this is the year of multimodal. And I think, you know, Harrison, obviously working really closely with a lot of developers who are actually building this, it's like, I'm not so sure we're, we're, we're there yet. Yeah, I mean, we see like OpenAI going really hard into multimodal. We see Google doing it. And so I think a lot of people are really excited about it. A lot of people are working on it. I think we're going to continue to see advancements. But at the same time, like you said, we're still far away from really having it optimal enough to do the type of use cases that we'd want to do with it. Totally. I thought another part, I mean, clearly he's super passionate about personalization. And I feel like I kind of agree with him that, that it feels like if, if we nail that, that's like this step change improvement where you can't ignore a lot of these applications. Like I was struck by when we had Arvin from Perplexity on um, and he talked about like his long-term vision for Perplexity. It's like these answers that are tailored to you. And so you, uh, you know, Jordan, you might be really interested in Taylor Swift. And so it's really long Taylor Swift page. I'm a little more sophisticated, you know, interested in, uh, in, in, in uh, the inner workings of, uh, of reinforcement learning. And so that page is tailored to me. Uh, the joke is that it's it's really the reverse, but um, <laughs> I think basically you could imagine that like that starts, you know, where you have a Wikipedia that's kind of static and gives the same kind of information to anyone. Um, as you start, what's what's amazing about these LLMs is the ability to just render content on the fly and completely change that based on who the person is. And I feel like that's uh, a super interesting underexplored angle of a lot of these applications. I agree. I think um, that is the future. I think we're still a long way from that in the sense of you know, I thought you, you were the early stage investor optimist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that we wouldn't invest in it, but I think, you know, this year we'll see if it really comes to that. You know, I think like RLHF is a good example of this where you're taking sort of your broad user feedback uh, of your product and getting the models to be better. We spoke with dozens of experts uh, and companies and they're still not using RLHF. They're still in the early phases of fine tuning and deployment and inference and things like that. And so I think it's going to take time to really get to that level of personalization and the tooling for that. And then, you know, I also thought like, you know, this idea that we're actually maybe most bottlenecked today on user experience and like that's where, you know, a lot of innovations are to come, uh, really compelling. And, and I think that like, you know, obviously you always have to take a step back and be like, it's only been, you know, what, under a year since we've had GPT-4 and, and even started to explore these capabilities. It feels like this next year, you know, I mean, it was funny hearing Harrison say, hey, this might actually be a stable time, relatively speaking, to how thing, crazy things have been. Um, and that might actually be a really interesting time. You know, I feel like both of us are really excited about just this year, for what it means for applications, what it means for folks that have had a bit longer to think about what some of these new paradigms might look like. I, I agree. I mean, I think a lot of people have said this is the year of applications, AI applications. Um, I think we're going to see a lot of interesting stuff. You know, Harrison mentioned this, but you look at the iPhone and the internet and all these sort of foundational technologies, the cloud, and a lot of the interesting applications and, and startups that emerged were not that first year. They were four or five years later. Um, you know, like you look at sort of the time that Uber and Lyft and Snapchat and Facebook and all these things happened. It was right after, you know, a few years, those fundamental changes. And so I think we're going to see a similar thing in AI. Yeah, though AI seems to be dog ears, so maybe maybe we'll yeah, just do maybe, one, not a maybe. Not four or five. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I also loved his kind of framework for the three different types of builders. I think he mentioned, you know, there's the AI native companies, there's uh, like kind of more innovative digital companies, and then there's like your classic enterprises. And, you know, I thought his, his point was actually really well taken, which is that we may see a lot of the products because they're outwardly facing from the first two, but actually enterprises themselves are doing a lot of stuff. It's just a lot of it's internal facing. Um, and that obviously ends up being lower risk for them. It ends up being, you know, if you're wrong, it's not the end of the world. You're wrong if, if someone's searching for a document internally. Um, but I think it's, it's, 
it's interesting that there seems to be more happening on the enterprise side than we might see just from what's outwardly released. Totally. I think, um, you know, from what we've seen and talking with practitioners, I think it really is internally focused, especially for some enterprises that are, you know, regulated industries, things like that. You know, I spoke with the chief compliance officer of a worldwide top five bank, and he was like, yeah, we would not dare to release something to our users for at least a year, maybe a year and a half. And we don't want to be the first to do it. We want to be like the third bank to do it in case something (laughs) messes up. And so I think like there's this hesitation um, to launch sort of user facing products on a lot of enterprises, but it's going to get better and better. And as they explore more and more. Totally. I felt like that, like when we were talking with Des from Intercom, he was like, yeah, right. people will use this like on weekends or yeah. like for like <laughs> a very specific thing. And I think we're all, um, it'll just be interesting to watch, you know, the journey to comfort uh, deploying that more broadly. It's a great time to build. And, you know, eventually we'll get to that point in the short term, probably. Hope folks enjoyed that. And definitely, uh, you know, like, subscribe. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll be out with another episode in the next few weeks. 